Resilience in Translating. I didn't understand until this interview really what type of resilience you need to be a translator. I knew translation was not a word for word process, but the challenges are so much more than untranslatable idioms because translation contains culture and context and layers that don't always easily fit into other languages. But my guest today says the headaches and the potential missteps are worth the exchange of text between cultures to have access to those cultures. Today, you will meet Lawrence Schimmel, author, translator, duende seeker. He's a New Yorker living in Spain, working with people from around the world. Today, we touch on Jewish surnames, multilingualism, building resilience in the face of the publishing industry, different bylines, contextualizing culture, learning our own language through others, italics, question mark, non-binary writing in gendered languages, multilingual relationships, and more. Let's go ahead and start the conversation. I'm Megan Kitchen, and this is Balancing Cultures. So I, I'd written to you yesterday just confirming how to say your name. And so your name is Lawrence Schimmel like Himmel. Is that correct? That is correct. Schimmel with two M's is a white horse in German. So many, both in Spain, this happened as well. But at a certain point, all of the Jews had to take uh, surnames that were either German or here in Spain, Spanish names. And all of the names that are plants or animals are always Jewish surnames. So. You know, I mean, something like Tannenbaum, which is Christmas tree, is the most Jewish name possible. <laughs> and why did they take one of the M's out? We lost one of the M's when the family emigrated to the U.S. So the mythology is that we lost one coming through Ellis Island, where, you know, with the, such long immigration queues, they just shortened a lot of surnames. I don't know if that's correct or if it just got truncated by whoever was doing the admin. My family also went through Ellis Island and... My grandfather, Vincenzo, came through and they went, no, you're James. Okay. <laughs> I mean, since then, I mean, we're small town New Yorkers where I was born at the same hospital my mother was born in. So, I mean, you know, <laughs> once we got there, we've been there, you know, we haven't moved until I moved. So how did Spanish come into your life? My mother had studied in Spain um, during the late Franco period, and she worked for many years as a Spanish-English interpreter in court and also teaching bilingual special, special education testing, things like that, where in the U.S. it was important to know whether children had learning disabilities or whether they just didn't dominate the language of English well enough. So your mom was doing something with bilingual children to see whether or not their challenges they were facing in academics were a learning disability or language-based, which is very interesting because that's kind of what I do a little bit because I work at an international school with a lot of bi, tri, and quadlingual students in the academic support learning support department. And so this is a challenge we still face constantly. Exactly. So, I mean, even though my mother's languages were Spanish and English, she was doing bilingual special education testing for all children who, for whom English was not their first language, a language issue that they didn't speak English well enough or couldn't read in English, um, you know, maybe they read in a different alphabet, or whether it was that they had a learning disability like dyslexia or something like that, that was also at play. 
Yeah, I said something to my friends the other day about this type of thing. I said, you know, I remember once I was doing a like a pre-diagnostic test on a student, but he was Israeli and he was used to reading right to left. And I felt so bad making him do a learning assessment going from left to right. So all these things have to be considered. That's true. A number of years ago, I was at the Malta Mediterranean Festival with a number of writers, one of whom was um, Suad Amiri, who is a Palestinian writer. And she wrote a book in English on the computer, but she's fine reading in Arabic from uh, right to left, but reading in English from left to right, she's dyslexic. So she wasn't able to actually read her own book that she had written in English, even though she was able to type it in English. I wound up having to, you know, she read a section in, in Arabic and I read the English version for her. So, but it was just interesting, you know, of, of how how we're used to reading. Yeah, how we process language and, and text. Yeah. So do you have any Spanish culture or heritage or the Spanish for you has just come from your mother's studies? The Spanish for me came from my own studies. I'll, I can get into that. Um, we do have on my mother's side, we are Sephardic, um, although we've lost the surnames, you know, generations ago. Also, my, my mother's father was adopted, so he lost the surname there. You know, so I, I look Spanish <laughs> because of the Sephardic <laughs> uh, heritage on my mother's side. I also, I first came to Spain on my own years ago. I had been in love with Federico García Lorca's poetry and had gone in my late teens to Granada to in search of Duende, which is this um, flamenco concept. It's very hard to describe. It's one of those untranslatable words. And it's sort of like a moment of intense emotion or passion that's a fleeting, that's what you see during a, a performance that really moves you. That's a moment of Duende. So I had come to Spain in search of Duende through Lorca's poetry. And also uh, I was studying to dance flamenco. I was always, I mean, even though I started at uh, university as a marine biologist, I had already started writing and publishing beforehand. So, I mean, it's not that I gave up on a dream of science to study language. It was, you know, languages had always been something I'd been very interested in, you know, at a very young age. My parents actually had to sign the first contracts for me because I was under 18, so I wasn't able to enter a legal contract. I have almost you know, a handful of parallel careers, even though they're all related to literature. I don't know how to, how to separate them in many ways. You know I mean? In some, in so many ways, my being a writer and a translator is such an integral part of my identities and what I do. Um, I guess my biggest identity would be that I'm a, I'm a big reader. Yeah. I, I think that is kind of this subculture group. There's, there's those of us who are are readers. Like it really is a part of us. And there are those who read. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I think it's it's very different. It's very different. And I mean, unfortunately, there are those who don't read. <laughs> and there's also that group, yes. Alien species. <laughs> well, you just mentioned that, you know, your bio, when I read your resume, it's extensive. Literacy, the literary world, publishing. So Kind of what came first, translator, author? How did you get into this sector? As I had mentioned, I had started writing uh, when I was still in high school and submitting my work. I managed to build up a lot of resilience because um, at, at in my high school we had to do a sport, and um, I'm not especially athletic. I always did uh, track and field or, or distance running, and um, I was always the, the slowest absolute slowest runner. <laughs> um, but I finished every race. So that persistence, you know, 
I may come in last, but I finished every race. And that helped a lot in terms of dealing with the publishing world. And, um, you know, even, you know, you send material out, it gets rejected, you send it out again until you find the right editor for, for that piece. So, you know, my being a failure at uh, track and field helped me build up a thick skin in order to, um, to do that. I was, you know, both of those things were happening simultaneously. That is my early uh, short stories did find homes when I was uh, in high school. As we've mentioned, I was a voracious reader and there came a point when I ran out of things to read. <laughs> so I started writing stories to read. So that was sort of how things began. And I was, I was originally writing a lot in the fantasy and science fiction genre, but my interests are very varied. And, um, you know, as I mentioned, I have sort of all these parallel careers that don't overlap necessarily. You know, I write in both Spanish and English, so that right away is <laughs> non-overlapping. But I also, I write for kids. I write for adults. I write some stuff that's very for adults. You know, I've written a lot of erotica. My, my dad likes to joke that I write books for children and books you don't want your children to find. <laughs> for the publishing side of things, publishing doesn't like someone like me. They prefer someone to steadily produce new books in the same genre or area, especially under the same name. You know, I mean, there's some mystery writers, let's say, who have two different bylines that they'll do a cozy series under one name and they'll do a more violent series under another name to make sure that the audiences don't overlap. Um, in my case, I never, I'm me. I have lots of varied interests. I published lots of different books under, under my own name. And I don't pretend that all of my books are of interest for everybody or necessarily that anyone else aside from me is going to want to read all of the 120 books that I've published so far. <laughs> just a few, just a few books. Just a few. <laughs> we talked about the Spanish a little bit. Because both of my parents worked, we always had someone taking care of my sister and me until my parents came home. And usually my parents had helped for many years. They had helped a number of uh, Central Americans to get their papers and things like that. And as a result, I wound up speaking Spanish at home on a domestic level. So when I was in high school, instead of taking Spanish, I actually started taking Latin and Greek. And then I doubled up in later years and started taking Spanish as well as Latin and Greek. One of the problems I had is because I spoke fluently, even though I didn't have a strong grammar level, I was accelerated through, I think I skipped Spanish 3 into Spanish 4, which was conversation. And as a result, my formal training in Spanish, I'm missing this huge gap of grammar. It makes me think of my husband with Finnish because I attempted to take a few intro to Finnish lessons. Um, I'm not necessarily recommending that for people who have no Finnish connection because, wow. <laughs> but I would sit there and try and do my homework. And I'd ask my husband, okay, so does it end in N or E-N? And why does it conjugate in this way? And he's like, what's conjugation? <laughs> you know? And, oh, I don't know why it does that. Is that a preposition? Is it because it's a direct object? He had no clue. And he, you know, is a native speaker. So it depends on, I mean, you know, certainly in the U.S., we didn't really learn grammar until I learned a foreign language. So, you know, it was it was in Latin and Greek, which are more highly inflected languages than Spanish even. So when I came to formally studying Spanish, the structure was already there from the Latin and the Greek. Yeah. Because I had studied Latin and Greek, I've, I've very informally tried to study some German just because it's the other major route for English. And so, you know, having 
Latin and Greek, you know, studying German or being able to understand German helps me under, you know, with my, my skills in English as well. It was interesting how, how much German I was able to pick up passively. You know, so I mean, if, if the professor says hund, the Spanish who are used to perro for dog had no idea, but I was like hund, hound, okay, I know what that word is. And did you grow up with Yiddish? I did have some Yiddish. Because there's also the connection there. Exactly. So I'm bisschen Deutsch, I'm bisschen Yiddish. There's some connection there. But for instance, I can't read Yiddish if it's in uh, Hebrew script. Yeah. Oh, very different. I'm definitely not proficient in Yiddish. My German is better than my Yiddish, both from having studied a little bit and also having traveled to the Frankfurt Book Fair for so many years. I have sort of a I joke I have a book mess of vocabulary where I can talk about uh, books, food, and a bit of flirting in German. <laughs> and I'm hoping you can order coffee because that's always important. I'm turning 50 this year and I've actually never drunk a cup of coffee. <gasps> <laughs> I'm a teetotaler, but uh, I do happen to have a lot of food intolerances and allergies. And so food words are the first things that I learn in any language of anywhere I'm going after learning a few, you know, hello, thank you, please, <laughs> pleasantry sort of things. Yeah. Does this have gluten? Exactly. And how to say ona. Ona. Yeah. Ona without. <laughs> well, those are some of the kind of multilingual things in everyday life and in your personal life. But let's go ahead and dig into what it's like working multilingually within publishing because you draft stories in Spanish and English. Do you ever adjust a text knowing that it will not translate well? So you avoid using certain words that can't be translated well or a turn of phrase? So much depends on the project. So definitely, um, you know, I, I tend to write you know, if I'm just coming up with ideas, that is, if it's not, you know, something specifically that I'm planning for, I'll start in either language. And sometimes I, I use a sort of Spanglish. <laughs> Definitely with books that are bilingual. So if I'm doing a book that will appear in both Spanish and English, I always wind up having to re rewrite no matter which language was the first one that I started in. Because in those cases, the text has to be perfectly parallel text. So the translations have to show exactly the same thing. Mm. When books are just being translated, you know, when I'm working as a translator, if I'm doing a book that is just going to appear in the translation, you have a lot of more freedom and you're able to recreate in a different way. So there may be an idiom in one language that is not the same idiom in the translation, but that you can recreate a different idiom. And for me in translation, the important thing is the recreating the reading experience. So when it comes to my writing, though, even though I am a translator and I'm aware of how things translate, it depends on sort of the book and who the book is for and, you know, will the book be translated or not. And sometimes there are headaches that I leave in because they're perfect for the, you know, the audience in the original language, but then the, 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 it'll be a nightmare for whoever translates it. Some books don't necessarily need to work in translation or that joke may not be essential. This was also one of the things for me when I first moved to Spain back in 1999, where I was wondering, am I actually writing in Spanish or am I thinking in English still and then half translating the thought into Spanish before I finished the thought? Ah. I had very early after I moved here, I wound up writing a poem with the title uh, called Sida y Vuelta. So 
Ida y Vuelta is a round trip, but it's literally the journey and the return. And Sida is how AIDS is, is spelt in, in Spanish. And so Sida y Vuelta is something that is untranslatable into English. It's a play on words that authentic, indigenous to Spanish. And so for me, it was a confirmation that, yes, I am actually able to create something uniquely Spanish. You know, I'm not just thinking in English and translating halfway through the thought. Yeah. I do think that my Spanish, I still tend to have a fairly Anglo-Saxon syntax, though. So my Spanish, it's not quite what a native speaker might say, but it's not quite, you know, I'm not just literally translating things. Do you ever wish that you could write a book in Spanglish where you could just go back and forth freely using the language that's best for that moment? Um, I think, though, that there's a difference between the generative phase when I'm trying to get it on the page and something that who would be the right audience for that. That is, there are reasons when a Spanglish book makes sense. And this is actually something that as a translator happens. So I've translated, for instance, there's a Mexican uh, borderlands poet, Jorge Humberto Chavez, and I translated a book of his with an immensely long title called um, Te diría que fuéramos al río bravo a llorar, pero debes saber que no queda ni llanto ni río. So, Wait, that was the title? That was the title. So it's, I'd ask you to go to the Rio Bravo to weep, but you should know neither river nor tears remain. Oh, my God. And the publisher managed to fit the whole title on the spine, too, which was <laughs> pretty amazing. But he, as a poet, uses a lot of Spanglish, uses a lot of, Spang of English words directly in the, the Spanish poems, and also um, a lot of Englishified or Spanishified words. So when I was translating that into English, uh, obviously the words that are already in English stay in English, but to recreate that multilingual texture, I left other words from the Spanish original in the translation. So, you know, if it said pan dulce, which is a type of pastry, la loteria, different things that were uniquely Mexican identity, I left those in Spanish to make sure, you know, rather than translating them, to keep that same multilingual uh, borderlands texture in the English translation. Well, that makes me think of a question. And it is about when we have, do I want to call them international or foreign words? I don't. Um, let's say the text is in one language. In this case, it was Spanish. And the poet had put little English words in to create this texture. We see this a lot in where, let's say the book is in English, there are Spanish words plugged in or Japanese or something else, especially for food or celebrations. And my question, and this is a controversial one, is about when we use italics. So in the case of this poem, for example, were the non- I don't know what word to use here, non-majority language words, we'll say, were they italicized? So I'm against the italicization of, of sort of underscoring the foreignness of it. I mean, this is a very sort of be like, ooh, an uki foreign word. But, um, you know, it's a, sort of a way also where, I mean, there's a lot of things that one can, can talk about. There's a sort of exoticization. But I think that the italicization is sort of a, it's the colonial mindset of uh, the English language uh, or the English cultures, I think, even though English as a language will, you know, take any language into a back alley and, you know, steal as many words as they want. <laughs> you know, English will grab <laughs> words from any other language that, you know, they need 
you know, we're like frisson, so we don't italicize or something like siesta. Um, so I think that the amount of how assimilated a word is into the culture deals with, you know, do we put tofu in italics or not? Um, at this point, I think tofu we wouldn't, but, um, you know, a name like bibimbap or something would, would generally be italicized or not. But one of the, the things, though, is that we don't live in monolingual cultures. You know, there's overlap between so many different cultures and languages all around the world. And so we can talk, we've, we've talked a little bit about Spanglish and, you know, especially from an, an American perspective, Spanglish is, is definitely something that comes up here in Spain, for instance, there are, you know, most regions of Spain, people will speak, let's say, Galician as well as Castilian or Catalan as well as Castilian or Basque as well as Castilian. So in addition to, you know, having learned English in school or German or French or some other language. So in the places you and I live, let's say, it is common to speak more than one language or at least have an awareness of other languages. So it's not scary to see words that are not from your mother tongue. You know, I think in German, if you read a text and it's all in German and then the word feedback comes in mm-hmm. or email mm-hmm. or you know, something like this, it's not going to be in italics. I can't imagine a German writer who's putting English words into their text using italics. But when we write in English and we've got words like kimchi or falafel, it is in italics. So the question is why? German, I think, also isn't as scary a language as some other languages can be to most Anglophone readers. So I think that certain words or certain cultures, their words tend to be italicized much more than others. But should we put words in italics? I don't think that we should be using italics. So, What is the point for those who are in favor of it? What is their argument? Purity of the language, which is absolutely absurd. (laughs) Anytime you throw purity into an argument, there's got to be some eye rolls. So, but I mean, this is the thing, you know, as I mentioned earlier, English will steal words from, you know, any culture. The other thing is that, you know, languages are not static. No, they're not. You know, I'm not Spanish. I grew up speaking Spanish as a domestic language because my parents were not home and the people who were taking care of my sister and me spoke Spanish as their only language. That's only one situation. I mean, there's so many uh, multilingual environments that people live in, grow up in, etc. You know, I mean, we've talked, for instance, about Spanglish necessarily, but you know, if you take an example of India, which is a tremendously multilingual culture, you know, there would be similarities but differences between Hinglish, let's say, of Hindi English speakers, where people can be fluent in both but use different languages for different purposes. That is. Mm-hmm. In one social situation, you you may speak one language or the other. In a school setting, you're you're using English. In with your in-laws of one side, you're speaking Marathi, and with your in-laws on the or your your family on the other side, you're speaking Hindi. You know, what I mean, so those are very common situations. I mean, your kids are going to be trilingual, aside from any other languages they choose to learn from interest. Yeah, they they grow up and have a French partner that they may wind up, you know, adding French in as an extra language or something like that. And the the comment you made about Hindi, I've had several students, Indian students, 
who they switch between languages mid-sentence. Mm-hmm. The code switching. When they're speaking with their parents. And I'm just amazed at the back and forth. It's amazing to hear how, yeah, how plastic it all is, how flexible it all is. It's interesting though that, you know, when we learn something in one language, so, uh, you know, as I mentioned, I, I was learning to dance flamenco in Granada in my late teens. And when I went back to the States, I tried to continue dancing. And the only thing is that they counted the compass, the, they did that in English. And I couldn't, there was no duende. I couldn't feel the passion when they counted in English. And so, because I had learned it in Spanish. And so for me, it it was very, the language was such an integral part of the experience. Mm. But it's interesting that there are things that I know in one language that I've never had to speak about in the other language that um, even if I know the words, it's sort of like there's this barrier of, oh, I don't, you know, I'm not used to talking about this subject in this language. I don't know what to, you know, how to, how to go ahead. I know that feeling because when I first moved to Germany, I was actually an au pair. So I was working with a family and I learned a lot of things around the kitchen and around the home in German. Mm-hmm. And I would go to say something later, even now, and I think, what's that word in English? You know, when it comes to a certain spice or even a food product, and I'm going, what is that in English? And I can't think of it. Right. Even if you know what the word is in English, it's just, you know, you're, it, that hasn't been accessed in so long that, you know, that mental pathway yeah. is not there. My reflex is German in those cases, definitely. It's interesting how I write very differently in both Spanish and English. Um, for instance, if I'm writing, I mean, there's so much that if I'm writing in, about Spain in Spanish, I can take for granted that the audience will be familiar with certain things. Whereas if I write in English, I have to contextualize cultural details. You know, so if I, I'm writing in a story and you know talking about two kids who are having merienda, so merienda is a snack that you have between lunch and dinner because the the hours that we eat are, are so spread out. So I mean, if lunch is normally between two and four here in Spain, and then dinner would be after nine. So you would have merienda at, let's say, six o'clock in the afternoon. Obviously, if I'm writing about this for an American audience, by six o'clock, they've usually had dinner already. So, you know, that whole thing has to be explained, not just what a merienda is, but the the sort of whole Spanish um, meal system or meal times. Well, this can take us into translation in general. And I think one of the questions I wanted to ask with this is if you are someone, you're an author, or even you're a reader, and you're reading a translated work, how do you know it's done, quote unquote, correctly? In this example you just gave, there needs to be some context given to help the message come across for a non-native person to that culture. How does a translator make sure that's done correctly? I'm putting correctly in quotes. You know, hopefully the translator will do a good job. Hopefully there will be people um, who are editing as well. You know I mean, so this is sort of, you know, you, you've asked a number of different things from a number of different... I know. I piled it on. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, from an author's point of view, hopefully um, the people who are selling your rights are selling your rights, um, taking into consideration both your moral rights as well as the economic rights of the sale. So, I mean, they're not just selling it to the highest bidder, but to the people who will respect the the task and do the best job possible. Obviously, there are things that, you know, there are mistakes that happen. You know, people always talk about what gets lost in translation. I think that we lose a lot more by not translating so many things, that is, especially into English, so little gets translated. 
I run a small poetry publisher. In 2014, we started an imprint called Periscope to translate women poets into English, um, because in the two previous years, everything published in English, fiction, poetry, nonfiction, from all languages, only 26% of what was translated were by women writers. So there's a lack of women's voices that are not coming into English. And since I had the, the poetry publisher, Midsummer Night's Press, I said, okay, time to put my money where my mouth is and do something about this. And so we started that imprint and have now published five titles from Estonian, Slovenian, uh, Latvian, Lithuanian, and a Spanish author who I, I did the translation of. Wow. You know, yes, there are things that may be badly translated. Hopefully that's not the case. My feeling with translation is you sh- you're supposed to recreate the reading experience. So that's not just, you know, a word for word literal translation, but, you know, if something is fun and especially like if a kid's book is rhyming in one language, it should be rhyming, I think, in the translation as well. This means that sometimes you have to make adaptations or deviate from the text in order to recreate that. A lot of times you're not able to keep a pun in one place, but if you can add a pun someplace else, then that, you know, that's what's called compensation in translation. Or let's say you have a lot of assonance in one place, or if you're translating a poem and it has a lot of assonance, um, you may not be able to keep the assonance in the translation, but if you put in a lot of alliteration in that line or in a different line, you're you're preserving. That's the, the hope that you're preserving the feeling of the text, not just the words of the text. Right. And not just the feelings. I mean, if you look at something like, I translated into Spanish a book called Little You by Richard Van Camp and illustrated by Julie Flett, which is a lovely board book. They're both indigenous Canadian or indigenous writers in what is now called Canada. Little You, it never says the gender of the baby. So in Spanish, which is highly inflected, this was problematic because all the diminutives in Spanish have gender tags on them. Little you, pequeñito, pequeñita. So I wound up retitling the book, Tu eres tu, you are you, in order to preserve the spirit of the book, which was not to gender the child being addressed, being read. So, um, you know, that's a liberty on one hand, but it's more respectful of the book by, you know, coming up with a solution that is true to the spirit of the book. I appreciate that example because that came up in my conversations with Seth Day, who's a trans man, when we talked about gender. And he's living in Canada and speaking French, and I'm in Germany and speaking German. And we talked about the challenges of gendered words within those languages, especially for non-binary people. So throughout the book, I wound up using indirect non-binary language. That is, instead of so if there was a line in the original that said, um, you are perfect, so instead of saying, eres perfecto or eres perfecta, which would be male or female, I changed it to, eres la perfección. So you are perfection. So that was a way of, you know, that's, that's indirect use of non-binary language. There are um, other cases. So I wound up translating a collection by a South African poet named Koleka Putuma, and she uses in her... English original, um, she writes woman or women, W-O-M-X-N. So she's, you know, using a very clear feminist tradition of Xing out man or men from womanhood. Mm-hmm. Spanish, man is hombre and woman is mujer. So you don't have that man in the literal word for woman. But because Spanish uses the masculine as the neutral 
we decided to X out that sort of cis-heteropatriarchal aspect of language by using the X instead of using gender tags. And we did that throughout the whole collection. So anytime that it wasn't specifically a man or a woman, all of the neutral, you know, those the students would be LXS, A-L-U-M-N-X-S, instead of los alumnos or las alumnas. We used the X in this case because she had originally used the X in her original, even though in Spanish, the tendency for this sort of direct non-binary language is to use the E because the X can't be pronounced. It was a creative solution, though, to help get the same point across in a new way. Mm -hmm. I, I like that example. So, you know, I mean, matching the tone is something that is vitally important. And especially switching between languages, there are so many cultural things that are accepted or unquestioned in one language that need to be analyzed or used differently in another. Yeah. Also, who's doing the translation is an issue as well. I translated a novel by uh, Trifonia Melibea Wono, who's uh, the first woman writer from Equatorial Guinea to be published in English. And at one point, she uses the word curandero. And in the first draft, I had used witch doctor. And then I was saying, it's such a loaded thing as a white American male translating a black African woman to use the term witch doctor. And so uh, we decided to leave curandero in the original rather than use that colonialist loaded language. I 100% agree with that kind of feeling that you had. When you say witch doctor, it does have a certain feeling. And I also, I find it fascinating when some of the original language is kept in, because it's a learning opportunity for me. The novel is written, in, it was written in Spanish, but it had a number of words in Fang, which is the ethnicity and the language that uh, the main character and the author both share. So in the translation, we left the Fang terms in Fang. Instead of, so the Spanish original used a glossary at the end, we wound up incorporating in, you know, sort of parenthetical we contextualize what each of the fang words meant the first times that it was used. But I also thought it was important that we left some Spanish so that people didn't think that I translated the novel from fang into English. So it, it features an orphan whose mother passed away while giving birth to her. And because the father never paid the bride price to the family, she was an orphan. And so everyone calls her hija, which is literally daughter, even though she's not the literal daughter for any of the people who are using that term. So we decided that in all of the dialogues, I would keep all of the, the Spanish terms, um, you know, abuela, grandmother. So outside of the dialogue, it always contextualized, you know, and she told her grandmother, abuela something, you know, so you don't have to know Spanish. It, you know, it gives you in the translation, it gave you all of the, the information you needed, but it kept that multilingual texture. Yeah, I really appreciate that. As a reader, I would find that type of translation much more fascinating than if you would have just put everything into English. I think that also as a teacher makes things more interesting and I think opens up the world, especially for students who are not going to be raised multilingually. It gives them that little bit of a window into other worlds, which is our hope with literature. I think also, though, that there's a double standard at play where we don't expect a text originally written in English to explain everything. That is, we are willing to do some work or to have to find out things or figure things out on our own. 
but very often for translations, and this I think comes back to the what gets italicized or not, we expect that I that a translation will gloss everything a hundred percent for the target reader, um, which is a very different reading experience than than it may be in the original. So, you know, so a text that's complex that uses large vocabulary words in the original, you know, I mean, there may be a text in English that that has words that you have to look up, even if it's your native language. But I think that very often translations get this double standard where they're held to a higher level of uh, intelligibility or easy to understandness. I agree with you, though, that I wouldn't necessarily need the glossary or the the parentheses or extra explanations. I just appreciate that those words are left in so that I, as the reader, have the opportunity to explore that culture. I don't necessarily think it needs to be italicized or explained to me because I agree. And I've said this to my husband before when he asks me about English words. I say, I don't know all the English words. I definitely don't know how to spell all the English words <laughs> or how to define all the English words. It's too big a language. And there's so many idioms as well. I mean, I'm always having to translate. My husband will listen to something music-wise and he'll be like, what does this phrase mean? And, you know, there's so many idiomatic <laughs> expressions that do not literally mean what, what the words mean. And uh, it's very tricky. And it's very, you know, I mean, there's things that I understand that are sometimes very difficult to try and um, explain. And also so much, uh, so many lyrics don't have good grammar. And so it's sort of like, they don't. this is not the best thing. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't it fun to be in a multilingual relationship? I always find it fascinating. And, and especially the, the languages of relationships. Um, there's a couple I know. She was from Bolivia. He was French. We met in Paris, but they had actually met while both were working in diplomatic circles in Russia. And so even though they both spoke fluently English, Spanish, and French, their relationship language was Russian. So when it was, you know, honey, pass me the this, when they talked to each other, they defaulted to Russian automatically because that was the context that they had met in. And I also think that that helps where you know, when they fight, you know, if, if, if they were fighting in Spanish or French, which was, which were their two, you know, mother tongues, one of them would always have an advantage in terms of being better able to express themselves. So, you know, using one of their shared languages as their relationship language, put them on an even footing. This is what I love about living in kind of a multilingual world. I am seeing so many benefits of living this experience now. And I'm I'm happy that I've put myself in this environment. Yeah, I mean, I definitely learning other languages changes how we think. You know, I mean, there are concepts that exist. You know, one of my favorite words in Spanish is escampar, which is this verb for the moment when it stops raining and the sky clears up. And that's a concept that doesn't exist in English. I don't know if it exists in German or in Finnish. Where until I learned escampar, I never had that. You know, I'd, I'd seen the sky clear up after it rained. Until I had the vocabulary to talk about it, I'd never understood that. And then just to, to end, I had been in a translation workshop, a poetry translation workshop in Slovenia, and uh, we each mutually translated one another using English as the bridge language into, into the different languages we work with. And one interesting thing in Slovenia is that they have a dual that doesn't exist in either Spanish or in English, which are the languages that I write in. But I'm still now always aware whenever I say we whether it's a dual intimate we, a you and I, or whether it's a three or more group we. Mm. Having learned this other thing, you know, this, this detail about another language, even if it's not in my languages, 
it still has changed how I think. And that's only a positive thing of having more resources to be able to think about things and the world differently. Yeah. I think that is a great way to end our conversation about translation and what ended up being multilingualism. (laughs) Thank you very much. A big thank you to Lawrence Schimmel, like Himmel, for sharing his story and opening my eyes to the woes and wonders of translating. I will look at works in translation with a keener eye and a lot more thankfulness than before. It really is an art and a great resource for accessing cultures to help with our balancing. Show notes and related episodes can be found on balancingcultures.com. Thank you for listening. This was Balancing Cultures, and I'm Megan Kitchen. (laughs) 